Did you know that thorium is more abundant in nature than uranium? We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about thorium as an energy source on this episode of The Curious Professor. I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. On this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll explore thorium-based nuclear power generation. But first, a trivia question. The first nuclear reactor was built during World War II as part of the Manhattan Project, but it wasn't built in New York. Where was it actually built? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Candace Seeger and Ralph Seeger on my podcast today. Candy is a retired electrical engineer who has worked in construction, startup, and testing in both nuclear and fossil fuel industries for 37 years. Ralph is a semi-retired electrical engineer who has worked in construction, startup, and testing in geothermal, fossil, and nuclear. Candy is also a USA Today bestselling science fiction writer, as well as an award-winning screenwriter. She's also my writing partner. When she told me about thorium-based reactors as a different way to generate power that could benefit the world, my curiosity was immediately piqued. I hope this interview with Candy and Ralph will spark your curiosity, too. Welcome to the show, Candy and Ralph. It's great to have you here. We're glad to be here. Yes, thank you. For the non-scientists, we'll start with the basics. What is thorium? Okay, well, thorium is a radioactive element like like uranium, a lighter element than uranium, and it's mildly radioactive in a natural state. Uranium is just mildly radioactive also in a natural state, but they're they're very similar. How is thorium used for power generation? Uh, Again, it's used pretty much the same way uranium is. You know, it's by fission. Fission is when you take an atom, bombard it with a neutron from another atom, and that becomes unstable, splits into two separate other elements, and produces a lot of heat at the same time. And the heat is a product they're looking for. They can use the heat to generate steam, and steam will run a turbine. And- Fossil fuels are contributing to the environmental crisis the planet is facing, predominantly because of damaging byproducts. Environmental groups have come out against nuclear power because of radioactive waste products. How are thorium-based molten salt reactors different? It, it, the fuel cycle is different. Uranium, will, when it splits, it generates plutonium and a lot of other long-lived and highly radioactive byproducts. Thorium does not really do that. Actually, thorium during the, the process becomes uranium, but it's a different isotope of uranium and it produces a far fewer byproducts and the byproducts are shorter-lived so that they're radioactive for a lesser amount of time. Yes, and in addition to that, 83% of the nuclear waste from a thorium plant is safe within 10 years. So you don't have to to store 100% of nuclear waste for thousands of years. Now, the remaining waste, the 17%, has to be in isolation and stored for 300 years as compared to 10,000 years for uranium in a light water reactor. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other benefits 
benefits of thorium as a fuel source? As I think we already mentioned, thorium is a naturally occurring fuel. It's four times more abundant than uranium, and it's it's very widely spread throughout you know the world. It's it's very easily to access. It's not in huge concentrations like you will see for like coal or for steel, but it's still there. And there's there's enough in the uh, the continental boundaries of the United States to last for thousands and thousands of years if it's if it's utilized. As a matter of fact, there's already stockpiles of thorium. Thorium is a byproduct of other mining activities, particularly for rare earth elements and even for coal. So I mean, there there actually is stockpiles sitting there waiting to be used, and there's just there's no way to use them right now because nobody's building these reactors. The reactor will use 90% of the energy in the fuel, whereas a light water reactor will only use 5%. The thorium reactor does not require the high pressure water that a light water reactor requires to keep the water from boiling. The, the salt, the molten salt can't boil. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't require any large cooling reservoir of water like the reactors nowadays. You see these big cooling towers and all that. It's not required. The preparation of thorium to use in the reactor is much simpler and cheaper than the preparation to create a fuel pellets out of uranium that the existing reactors use. That's a very intensive process to process that uranium into the fuel elements that go into a reactor. It's, it's a very critical process and it's expensive. The, the thorium reactor, you can process the spent fuel and add new fuel continuously without ever shutting the reactor down. Just, you know, take a, a side stream of fuel, process it, and re-inject it back in. I mean, you can't do that with today's reactors. You have to shut them down for a couple months, pull the fuel out, and put new fuel in. And in, compared to uh, fossil fuels, the same weight of thorium has about a million times the energy that the same weight of fuel oil would have. It's incredible. For a thorium reactor, the failure modes are totally different than the failure modes for a light water reactor. The, the Basically, the only one failure mode that can happen is that you stop circulating the salt in the reactor. If that happens, it stops reacting because it heats up. As it heats up, it becomes less reactive just because of the, of the thermal qualities. So you don't have the meltdowns that you have with a light water reactor. And this actually applies to any large source of electricity, but you can take the electricity and use that to create hard hydrocarbon fuels from the atmosphere. You combine water with the CO2 that's in the atmosphere, and you can generate gasoline and oil. So you basically can pull carbon CO2 out of the atmosphere, and that reduces you know, the, the impacts of the global warming. As we've already discussed, the salt reactor produces a lot less radioactive waste than a light water reactor, up, up to 10,000 times less, but typically it'd probably be a thousand times less. And that waste is less reactive and safer than the uh, light water reactor would be. Yeah. The other thing is, is that if we used it as a fuel source, it produces two byproducts, molybdenum 99. What is it? Molybdenum. Oh, you say it. 99. (laughs) And that's for medical imaging. And bismuth 213, which is used for medical purposes for both leukemia and skin cancer. I believe Candy's mentioned this already. The uh, thorium reactor uses 90% of the energy in the fuel. A uh, light water reactor only uses 5% of the energy that's in the uranium. So you're getting a, a lot bigger bang for the buck. Right. And the other thing is the light water reactor would have to have a large water source. The thorium reactor doesn't. It doesn't require a large water source. 
Are there disadvantages to the thorium? The, the main disadvantage of a thorium reactor is the, the salt. Once, once when, you hit, when you turn the thorium into a salt, such as like sodium chloride, something like that, it becomes very corrosive. And it's a, it's a metallurgical challenge to, to make sure that doesn't cause damage to the equipment. But it is, it is a challenge that has been addressed. addressed, and there actually are solutions out there. How would you say that thorium power generation compares with other alternative energy sources like solar power and wind generation? The thorium, it, it's a, a reactor. It's its on there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's running. Whereas you know, with solar and wind, it it's only works when the wind is blowing or when the sun is shining. You can help solar and wind by adding battery storage to those uh, sites. But again, those batteries are very expensive and they have a, a huge carbon footprint to create the batteries. And also there's energy loss when you, when you put the energy from the solar cells into the batteries and there's more energy loss when you take it out of the batteries to send to somebody's house. So it, it's it's not as efficient as having a reactor there. Right. And the other thing is, is that both wind and solar generation are land intensive options and can only be used in specific suitable locations, whereas a thorium reactor can be in a very small area. A molten salt reactor was built and tested at the Oak Ridge Laboratory in the 1960s, and it ran successfully for a number of years. Yet the U.S. government settled on uranium technology and discontinued thorium research in 1973. Why do you think the United States went with uranium-based nuclear energy over thorium-based technology? The one thing to keep in mind is the initial designs of reactors in general was pushed by the military. You know, the military was looking for a compact energy source that would work in a submarine or an aircraft carrier. And their goal was just totally for military aims. They weren't looking for general power for the country. So the, the light water reactors were designed to satisfy the military's requirements. When, it's, when the light water reactors is being utilized by the uh, power industry, they still have some of those requirements that's built in. You can't do anything about it. Whereas a thorium reactor doesn't have those requirements and is just basically a more refined version. Right. Well, what another thing, too, is that one of the fringe benefits, I guess you would say, for the military was the fact that these light water reactors were producing weapon-grade plutonium as a, you know, as a byproduct. As for bombs. Right? Yeah, so they were picking that up and utilizing it for bombs. So they definitely wanted, you know, to have that reactor because they wanted access to that byproduct. Mm -hmm. Whereas the thorium, thorium reaction produces very small amounts of plutonium, and it's actually a different isotope of plutonium, so it's not suitable for, for bombs, which obviously the military wasn't real happy about. Okay, in addition to that, the information about the thorium reactor has been buried the National Nuclear Security Administration, which is a sub-agency of the Department of Energy, buried a report on thorium from Westinghouse. They classified it, and there was no reason to do that. In the 21st century, the report was finally released, and consideration was again given to pursuing thorium. An attempt was made to pass a bill 
on thorium, but it died because no one in Congress was interested. And and what is so frustrating <laughs> is the irony here is that Alvin Weinberg, who was instrumental in developing the Whitewater Reactor, he realized the inherent dangers of it. So Mr. Weinberg, along with Dick Engel, a chemist, also worked on the thorium molten salt reactor, and they recognized how much safer it was, how much better it was for the country and for the world. But they both were very frustrated because they could never get it commercialized. Yeah, one, one of the problems was is the uh, nuclear industry had already started going down the road of the light water reactors, and they didn't want to re-gear and turn around and go with a different design. They just wanted to keep taking the same design and just refine it, but it has inherent problems, and there's just no way to design around those inherent problems. How can thorium molten salt reactors be used to forward American foreign policy around the globe? For one thing, with the situation with Iran and the enrichment of uranium, it would be easy to come in and say, hey, we have a solution to this whole situation. We will give you this thorium molten salt reactor technology. We will come over and build one for you. And oh, by the way, you don't enrich uranium and you don't have any weapons-grade plutonium as a byproduct. Yeah, there'd be no need for them to have to do anything with uranium or plutonium. They would have the power, and it's by a a safe fuel, and they can do whatever they want with it. That would truly be transformational. How can thorium energy production transform our economy and increase job creation in our country? Well, I mean, initially, you, it would take a very large workforce and employ a lot of people to build the reactors. The, the ultimate goal would be to replace all of the fossil fuel plants with thorium reactors. So that, that's, quite a, that's, a, that's a big job. Right. But, but it would employ a lot of people to do that. Right. And in addition to that, one of the things with these automobile companies coming forward and saying, we're we're going to all electric vehicles. Well, that's that's terrific, but we're going to need a battery that can travel a large distance on a single charge, say 500 miles. We also need a battery, that battery to recharge in a fast, short period of time. And we have to build these charging stations. And for all of this to happen, we have to have reliable, dependable energy sources. And that's where the thorium molten salt reactor comes in. And in in addition to that, so you have all of that infrastructure being built. In addition to that, you're building the plants, you're refining the fuel, you're manufacturing, hopefully, in this country, the reactors and the other components that would be a part of those plants. So it would be a significant amount of production in this country. The Chinese have made thorium research and development a priority. Can you tell us more about how China is doing in this area and why the U.S. should be concerned? Concerned. I am going to paraphrase from a book. The name of the book is Sellout by Victoria Bruce. This is, quote, on October 2012, Peter Lyons, the Department of Energy's Assistant Secretary for Nuclear Energy, and Jing Mianhang of the Chinese Academy of Science signed an agreement between Oak Ridge and Jiang. This agreement basically turned over the U.S. technology for the thorium molten 
and salt reactor to China. We, we basically gave them all of our research and initial, initial testing. Right. The agreement was for both countries, U.S. and China, to work together on a molten salt cooling system for China's new Gen 4 reactor design. Not only would China be collaborating with Oak Ridge, capturing all the research done by Weinberg and his team and paid for by the U.S. government, the People's Republic of China would actually bankroll the U.S. Department of Energy to pay American scientists and American national laboratories to work for the Chinese. David Holcomb, a nuclear engineer, confirmed this item in an interview with Ms. Bruce. That's the author of this book. It's true, said Holcomb in a 2014 interview. China will be paying my salary. It's a trade. They're going to do a lot of testing that we simply don't have the money for. And they're going to get experienced people to help provide direction. That's end of quote. That's the end of the information from Sell Out, the book. So, you know, we have multiple wars that we're constantly fighting via the by the U.S., but we don't have the money to develop our existing technology that would do wonders for the rest of the planet and our own country. So, so basically, we're giving everything that we've done to a, a foreign country. Right. They will own it at that point. That's right. And they'll sell it back to us. Yes. So they'll patent <laughs> it and they'll own it and they'll probably manufacture all the parts and pieces that go with it and sell it. That's absolutely shocking. It is. You've been advocating for state and federal politicians to look at thorium as a unique alternative energy source. What has been most challenging about that mission? The lack of response. I have sent this out to representatives, to senators, to the president, to the vice president, to the secretary of state, to the secretary of defense. I have sent it out to the heads of the unions. I have sent it out, especially to the electrical workers union, to several divisions within their group. I have sent it to governors. I have sent it to everybody who has the word energy listed by their name. If they have uh, a mailbox, candy, send <laughs> The, there has been only two responses. The state of Wyoming responded to me and said they were interested. And so I appreciate the fact that I did get a response from them. And West Virginia responded and said, we have a law in West Virginia. We cannot build a reactor in our state. And I looked it up and sure enough, they don't. They cannot build a reactor in their state. Well, basically, yeah, there's this, you know, there seems to be no, no desire on any any of public officials to pursue this at all? No, there isn't. You know, they just seem to go in circles and they seem to think that they keep saying keywords like solar and wind and, you know, there's nothing else. And the other thing that's tragic is that there have been different representatives, different senators who have presented thorium bills and they get killed. You know, the, the, the bills just get killed off. They don't even go before committee and, you know, have a review or anything. So it's, you know, I think the leaders don't even care. I think they're just looking for votes. And, I, and another thing that I found very insulting is the fact that I'm spending money to send these letters out to these people and, you know, certified mail. And I, my response has been with some of them, can you send us money for our next election? No, I cannot because you're not doing anything. 
That seems to be the blanket response lately. Whenever you send a letter or email to government official, they respond with a request for money, a request for funds. Right. That is their primary objective is to get money to stay in office. Yeah, their primary objective is to get elected and to continue to get elected rather than serving their constituency. Is there anything else that you'd like listeners to know about thorium as an energy source? (laughs) Oh, yes, there is. This is something that we found that was mind-blowing. We found this just doing research. We came across this one article or editorial. Yes. Written back in 1958. That is correct. Okay. By a biochemist. And it was published in all places in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in the January 1959 issue. Okay, so the title was No More Ice Ages? Question mark. The author that wrote it did a bunch of research. He got interested in what was going to happen in the future, and he did some research. Yes, and in that research, he discovered we were dumping, at that point in time, 1958, 6 billion tons of CO2 per year in the atmosphere. Today, we are dumping 40 billion tons but, of CO2 in the atmosphere. But but he started Crunching the numbers. Yes, that was the thing that was so impressive. And just to give you an idea, so th- I looked at things that he talked about. He said in approximately 350 years, based on this rate of heat that was coming into the planet, that there would be the ice would melt all of it, and the the rise of the water would be 60 yards. Well, this is confirmed via the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the United States Geological Society, CO2 emissions were our world in data, and the National Snow and Ice Data Center. So I have done all this research with various groups to verify his information. Another point that he made was he talked about this exponential increase in the temperature rise. And just like Ralph had said, he was doing the math and providing that information. Well, he was spot on. Everything he gave in his article was absolutely correct. Has happened so far. And has happened. And he predicted this into the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And so... If anything, he was conservative. Things are actually getting worse faster than he predicted. And so the, the thing about this is, is that another thing to note is that he never used the word possible, probability. It was all definitive. This is going to happen based on this. It was it was definitive in nature. The person that we're talking about is Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer, who was also a biochemist. And they knew this. This should blow everybody's mind. This was known in 1958. And we have idiots debating in the 21st century, whether or not there's climate change or global warming. So apparently the people in 1958, the scientists back then were a lot more intelligent than the ones that are saying that they're not sure if that's what's happening now or not. It's interesting that it was a science fiction author published in a science fiction magazine in 1958, and it's our reality today in 2021. Right, but he didn't write it as science fiction. This was written as... um, It was a 
of fact, fact Yes, because he wrote nonfiction as well as science fiction. He actually he edited and wrote 500 plus books, and he had thousands of letters. I mean, like I don't know if it was 40 or 50,000 letters that he wrote. He he was just the most prolific writer. But he wrote a history series that was factual, nonfiction, and then of course his fiction is science fiction. But he wrote a lot of um, engineering-based studies that were also nonfiction because he was a professor of biochemistry at Boston University. That's what he was initially doing, but he was making more money as a writer. And so he ended up just writing for the most part. That is absolutely fascinating to me. Where can listeners find out more about Thorium? There was this book that Candy has already mentioned. It's called Sellout. And the author was Victoria Bruce. And she chronicles how the initial reactors at Oak Ridge was, was designed and the reasons why it was designed and all that. And then she chronicles how we gave it to China. So there, there's that. That's a very good book. There's another website you can go, and you'll have to spell this out, Candy. You can spell it better than I can. I was thinking, okay, it's FLIB-Energy, and that's F as in Frank, L as in liquor, I, B as in brother, E as in Edward-Energy.com. And then there's backslash media backslash. And there's a tremendous amount of information in the form of videos and PDFs. And also on Amazon Prime, there are two really good documentaries on Thorium as well. So that, you know, that will get them in the ballpark and get them started. This was so fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time, Candy and Ralph, to be guests on the Curious Professor podcast. It was great to have you here today. Oh, thank you. It's our pleasure. Yes, we enjoyed it. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. Where was the first nuclear reactor built? Chicago Pile 1 was the first nuclear reactor. It was built in 1942 by Enrico Fermi underneath the University of Chicago's Stagg Field Stadium. We'll end this episode with something punny. What does an iPhone drink for energy? Apple juice. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Curious Professor podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to the Curious Professor podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning, and be curious with Dr. B. Dr. B.